0: welcome to ira's everything bagel where i talk with intriguing people about everything their passions pursuits and points of view my guest today is award-winning documentary film producer and director jonathan near i hope i got that right
1: per- perfectly
0: right thank you the and he is the director behind the essential link the story of wilfred israel it's the amazing story Of a wealthy jewish businessman and owner of berlin's largest department store in the 1930s who is involved in the saving of tens of thousands of jews for more information about this documentary and everything about jonathan go to jonathan that's n-i-r and follow him on vimeo facebook instagram and linkedin jonathan welcome to the show hi how are you ira good very well thank you i'm glad you came on because i wanted to talk to you not only about your documentary but also about your career and why you decided you wanted to become a filmmaker, as well as other things which you can talk about during our conversation. Why did you decide to become a filmmaker?
1: You know what? I I never thought about becoming a filmmaker when I was uh, younger. Uh, When I was a teenager, I grew up in a kibbutz. We didn't have cinema. I had nowhere to see films except of my uh, old TV in my parents' house. But after... The military service, I went traveling and when I was traveling, I became a photojournalist because I realized that when I photograph, I just get connected to people through the photographs. I can either connect to the people that I photograph or I can write about it and show my photos when I go back home and make some contact with other people and tell stories and tell inspiring and interesting stories that connect between people. And it was really, really interesting for me. And then. Um, because of some things that happen in my my personal life, I um, changed from photo, from photojournalism to filmmaking. Um, after the two thousand and six uh, Lebanon war, uh, where I was injured, and um, through my injury or after my injury, I was working in a place called the Dolphin Reef in Elat, uh, making uh, pictures and videos of dolphins, and. Um, My injury uh, made me, uh, or after my injury, I got connected very, very strongly with the dolphins. And that was the beginning of my first documentary, Dolphin Boy. And so I I, I became a filmmaker. I didn't plan to be. It just happened to me. And um, I had no passion when I was younger for that. But just it happened to me throughout my life.
0: You're very fortunate because a lot of people who will go through, especially in combat, traumatic experiences don't. or are not able to pick up the pieces and develop a talent, develop a viewpoint, and be able to put those together to cope.
1: Yeah. I mean, psychologists call it post-traumatic growth, PTG, which is a very, you know, thing that many, many people speak about today. Um, I believe that from pain and from from adversities and, and other difficult things that happen to our life, we grow. This is the place where we can actually grow. I always, when I talk to students or to um, uh, school children, I say, you know, when I make a documentary, I don't look the, for the stories about people that everything went perfectly fine for them in their life, because this is really, really boring. It's also true, I mean, because pain is part of life, you know, there is nothing that we can do about that. And then the question is Will pain make us disconnect from each other, or can we use pain to um, actually uh, join forces as human beings and try to do good to each other, to help each other, and to make this world a better place?
0: Do you also think that film is a universal communications medium in the sense that the documentaries you make, the films you make, connect with a wider audience than just, for example, in Israel or just? in one country or two countries, but can can communicate amazing stuff to a wide variety of people, even if the language has to be translated on the film or the video, it's still communicating the message.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to look for universal stories. You know, sometimes small stories that will tell a universal story. You know, it doesn't have to be a huge story like the story of Wolfrid Israel, which really saved Almost 20,000 people, according to historians. And that's a huge story. But even if you take a, a smaller story like, um, my film, my hero brother or cutting the pain or dolphin boy, it's not an epic story. It's not a huge story, but it's, it's always touches universal aspects of humanity, um, relationship between father and son, how you deal with trauma, with pain, with death. You know, stories that everybody, doesn't matter what country he comes from, what language he speaks or what religion he believes in or not, can identify with. Because our journeys as, as human beings are pretty similar in this 70, 80, 90 years, 100 years in the best case scenario, you know, maybe a little more. That's a very short time, very similar. We, we're going through a very similar path. We should remember it.
0: It sounds to me as if you would consider yourself a humanistic filmmaker.
1: I don't know. I'm just a human being. I think that filmmaking for me is just a tool for communication. And it's a tool to try to communicate values and ideas that I think are important.
0: But isn't it uh, also, uh, I would think for you, also a form of therapy?
1: Yeah, definitely, right. definitely. Actually, I was one of the people that, you know, wrote a protocol that is called DocuTherapy uh, about the um, how to make documentary films as part of the therapeutic process, which is something that we worked with in Israel, not only in my uh, um, commercial films, but also in therapeutic films that uh, we do occasionally. And actually, docu-therapy, there is a um, a, a new uh, PhD that is being written about docu-therapy right now at the uh, University of Edinburgh. In my view, documentary filmmaking is not documenting reality. It's creating reality because you choose what to film. You choose how to edit. You choose what questions to ask. So you, you directing the, the the thoughts of of the audience, you know, in a way. So you are creating reality. You're not documenting reality. And I think it's a it's a it's a big um, responsibility as well. I mean, what stories are we choosing to tell? Because the stories that we tell becomes our um, memory in the end. It's Gabriel Garcia Marquez said once. Life is not what uh, one lived, but what one remembers and how one remembers it in order to recount it. Right, exactly. It's true, you know, and we are the storytellers of our lives.
0: And for more information, you can go to Jonathan's website and find out more about docu-therapy. I thought that was a fascinating part of your career, where you're not limiting it to just documentary films, but a specific approach.
1: Yeah, and you can also see my um, a little TED talk that I was making about docu right. ther- therapy, uh, healing trauma through um, through uh, documentary filmmaking. The idea in docu therapy is not only that you're making a film about someone else, but that you, as someone who experienced pain or trauma, right. can make your own film. And in the end of this uh, um, TEDx talk, I said that you know you don't even need a camera for that. Right. Because we have great cameras right here, right. we call them eyes. We have great um, sp- um, microphones, we call them ears, and we have the best editing room <laughs> in the world, which we call the brains. You know, and and we are telling our stories. And I'm not talking about you know taking a great shot of yourself in Instagram and say, "Oh, my life is beautiful." No, I'm talking about. Um, I'm not talking about. Uh, running away from pain and, and and you know painting life in 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 colors of pink, no. But I'm I'm saying that that when you experience pain throughout your life and all of us do, then the question is how we take this pain and we grow from it, and how do we tell a story about ourselves growing from it and inspire other people.
0: You mentioned the brain as a as a wonderful editing tool, it's also a wonderful hard drive. So you can store all those memories.
1: It's true, but memories memories, and that's something I learned from a really wise man, I forgot his name, are not stable. You know, they're growing and, and developing all the time. There is no such thing, memory, that is that is not changing. Everything is changing, you know, we right. know that. Everything is changing all the time. And our memories too. So, at any given point, you can take the bad memory and 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 try to find a way to um, get out of it. Into uh, because we cannot change the past; that we have nothing to do about the past. But from this moment onwards, we can make a choice. Uh, how to how to think, how to talk, and how to act. One other question: could be, I do
0: want to talk about Wilfred Israel in that documentary, but what you're talking about is very important. You mentioned earlier that pain is part of life. So by editing your "quote unquote" memories or your approach, so the past is the past. It sounds like you're now saying the opposite, which is that you're going to think the way you think regardless of what the reality was so isn't that in a way not avoiding reality but avoiding pain so you're using your mind to avoid pain is that is that a good way to go
1: no, i i don't think I, I um there is no way to avoid pain i think that that The fact that pain is something that is not only mine, but is, you know, you have pain. I don't know you. I met you 10 minutes ago, but I'm sure that you experienced pain in your life and, and terrible times and sad times. And sometimes we are so ashamed to be vulnerable and to share our pain with others and then we lose, we're lose we losing something, you know, we're losing something, we're losing the ability co- to connect to other people's, and by connecting to them, being inspired by them, inspiring them, and create some kind of positive change, so this is one thing, and the other thing is, when you tell a story, it, it's a question, uh, am I going to tell the story of my trauma, or am I going to tell the story of the, my rehabilitation from the trauma, that's, that doesn't mean that i didn't have the trauma i had the I trauma see. yes uh, i get I your point on, right i focus on the on what i can do about that you know there is nothing that i can do about what is ha- what happened to me or what is happening to me right now the only thing that i can control is how i react to that and if i try to react in a positive way if i try to learn from my mistakes if, if i try to be a better person First of all, to other people, but of course, also to myself. If I am able to forgive myself for my mistakes and forgive others, if I'm just, you know, trying to charge myself with positive energy, with compassion, lots of compassion. Compassion is really, really important in documentary filmmaking. You cannot make a documentary film, the kind of I make without being compassionate to your characters and to their stories. And I think compassion is really, really important for all of us, especially in this day, day and age. No, I, appreciate, that was also, I appreciate that. That was also one of the things that really, um, I think, connected me to uh, to Gar Jameson, who invited me to Las Vegas, where I met you, and I met a group great people on my on my trip to Las Vegas.
0: And you came out because you produced a documentary and directed a documentary. The story of Wilford Israel. And that's what we want to talk about now. And how did you first become aware of Wilford Israel? And it's funny because, just a a little preamble, every time I think I know everything about World War II and what led up to World War II, always there's a new book, a new documentary that brings out new materials. This one was a shocker. I was not aware at all of Wilford Israel. So why don't you share with us how you became aware of Wilfred and what he did and the amazing story and the documentary itself.
1: So for you, it was a shock. So guess what it was for me. <laughs> I, I I grew up in a kibbutz, which is a small community, you know, used to be socialists uh, back in the days. Uh, crazy story itself. Uh, probably mo- some of you know what is a, kib- a kibbutz. And I grew up in a kibbutz. And in the center of this kibbutz, there was this huge building that was called the Wilfrid's house. That was the name of the building. Now it's, it was in the center of the center of the kibbutz. You cannot miss it. And we knew that this house was built in the forties, where all around were only tents, you know, back in the days. Um, and we knew that it was named after a man that was, uh, that his name was uh, Wilfred Israel. But on this Big house. There was only one, um, like uh, plaque, or however you say it. Mm, yeah, plaque. That. That's correct. Yes, and and it just said that Wilfred Israel was a very wealthy man who donated his art collection to the kibbutz and that he was a good friend of the founders. Now I grew up in this kibbutz, so my grandparents built this house. They founded the kibbutz in 1936. They all came. All the founders came from Germany. Um, but my father was born there in 49. Mm-hmm. I was born there oh, in 77, grew up there. My kids were playing there on the big grass lawn in front of Wilfred's house. Nobody knew who was Wilfred for 70-something years. Amazing. Nobody talked about it. And then one day, um friend came to me and he said, listen, I, we must sit because I, I must tell you an amazing story. And he came uh, to my office, and we sat together. And he gave me this book in English. And he said, "Why won't you read this book? This is the book. This is a book that was written in the 1980s by an historian named Nomi Shefford. The book's name is Wilfred Israel: German Jewry's Secret Ambassador." And he gave me the book, and he said, "This is the biography of Wilfred Israel." Um, and I said, Wilfred Israel from the Wilfred's house. And he said, yes, you must read it. You're going to make a film about it. And I said, OK, this is 300 pages in English. It will take me a while. Why won't you summarize it for me? <laughs> and, then, and then this friend of mine, Ophir, that's his name. He said, why won't you turn... The book to the other side. Someone someone else will summarize it for you. <laughs> and I turned the book to the to the to the cover, to the back cover. There were two paragraphs there. The, the top paragraph was by Martin Gilbert, one of the greatest historians of the 20th century, the biographer of Winston Churchill. And he wrote some amazing things about this character, Wilfred Israel, and about the research that Naomi Shepherd was doing. Uh, in order to write this book. But underneath that, there was another shorter paragraph which, which really attracted me, and that was one sentence. It said, never in my life have I come in contact with a being so noble, as strong, and as selfless as Wilfred Israel, and underneath that, Albert Einstein. And then I was like, okay, if this is what Albert Einstein was writing about this man, even though it didn't make any sense to me, you know, if he he was such an amazing character, and in this book, the whole story is in this book. He saved about twenty thousand Jews. He was the uh, the man who uh, started and, and 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 was among the, the initiate. He was the initiator and among the, the um, operators or the most important uh, operators of the Kindleton Sport operation. You know, he was there in Germany meeting the Quakers when they came to Germany just before the um, uh, British Parliament approved the the, the, the movement of 10,000 Jews, children, Jews with other parents, the Kindertransport. And he was the initiator of the thing. And how mm-hmm. didn't we know in the kibbutz about this whole thing? You know, this doesn't make any sense. And how come nobody in Israel spoke about it? Because Wilfred Israel didn't only know Albert Einstein. He was a good friend of Chaim Weizmann, who was the first president of Israel. He was a very good friend of Martin Buber. He was a very good friend of Moshe Sharet. He was a very good friend of Siegfried Lehmann and Max Warburg. Really, really important people from that time writes to Wilfred Israel in a big box in the kibbutz archive. I could find all these letters and I was amazed like all these people. And nobody said a word about him. And that was the beginning of my, my journey with Wolf at Israel. It took six years. By the way, I didn't produce it. It's important to say that the producers are non-Shalev or Phil Ber and Milenberg.
0: Thank you. Yes, thank you for correcting that.
1: What was the reason
0: that nobody knew about him, given the fact that he had this impact and that he was obviously connected with a lot of important people as well, and he was wealthy in his own right? Why is it that this became an unknown story?
1: Well, you know, it's only my assumption in the end, because I was not there. But from all the six years that I spent reading everything that was ever written about Wilfred Israel, and from knowing a little bit about psychology and post-trauma, I think that there are two main reasons why the story of Wilfred Israel was kept untold for so many years. First reason is that in order to save Jews from Germany in the 1930s, you didn't uh, fight with the Nazi administration with uh, gun machines or with uh, hand grenade. You know, you had to communicate with them. You had to bribe them. You had to speak with them. You had to, you know, you had to play the game with them, even though you hated them. But you had to speak with them and you had to find the common interest.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there was a common interest between the Zionist party or the Zionist organizations and um, the Nazi administration at the time, not because they liked each other, but because both of them wanted the Jews out of Germany. Mm-hmm and that I'm talking about the 30s before the final solution so this is what I call the small holocaust you know the the holocaust of the Ger- of German Jewry we have to remember that there were 530,000 Jews in Germany in 1933 330,000 were able to leave and 200,000 stayed there and died in the concentration camps mm-hmm. or from other reasons and that is actually the second reason why the story of Welfare Israel was kept and told. Because the first reason is that he had to communicate with the Nazis. Whomever spoke with the Nazi Nazis was regarded as a as a betrayer in Israel uh, when it was founded. Uh, you can you either know or you can read more about the Kastner uh, event in Israel in 1957. A Jew that um was saving Jews, but doing that while communicating with the Nazi administration in Hungary, uh, was killed in Tel Aviv. And I think that if I was a friend of Wolfred Israel, I would want to keep his story quiet because he, he did communicate with the Nazi administration. He did bribe them as much as possible. Not to save himself, but to save people that he didn't know from from uh, concentration camps um, in in Germany and and to buy visas and to get certificates for people and all that. So he used money and he used used money and the money was paid to the Nazis. That was the only way to save people back in the days. And um, and that was something that was not appreciated in Israel for many, many, many years. The second reason is that when you save so many people, you also have to uh, prioritize. You have to make really tough decisions. How many visas you give to whom, and in many cases, instead of whom, and with what money. And that was a really, really difficult thing. And we all know the stories of... Uh, you know, and the, and the people that actually stayed there in Germany were either the older people, the elders, or the people that has less had less money. And um Wilfred Israel as someone who was able to help so many people, could not help everyone. And Wilfred Israel himself asked the people from the kibbutz not to tell his story and during my research i also find out that he could help some of the parents of the kibbutz founders but not all of them so imagine that you know your parents were saved by some some someone that also tried to help my parents but he couldn't help my parents right and we are when we are neighbors so I don't think that you would go around and say, oh, Wilfred Israel was so great, he saved my parents, because he couldn't save the parents of, the, of your neighbor. Right. And okay. this whole thing of the um, survivor's guilt, these people didn't speak in general, so they didn't speak about Wilfred Israel as well. My grandfather never spoke about Germany until he was on his last days, you know. It was something, it was like a taboo, you don't speak about the past. So that's another reason. The fact that he was homosexual didn't help as well to, to make him into a hero. And he was not the right hero for the Zionist. Um uh he was not the right hero for Israel that was just born. You know, Israel needed heroes with rifles and with something in their hand to work in the field, not German. Businessman that uh, had um, that had to bribe the Nazis. That was homosexual. That uh, never held a gun in his in his life, and was actually a pacifist and a Buddhist. Didn't really work for them.
0: Well, it's a great documentary for people to watch. Before I let you go, though, what was the reaction in the wider world to the documentary when it came out, and then what was the reaction to the people on the kibbutz when the documentary came out?
1: So we started at the kibbutz. The kibbutz was the lachmus. Uh, how do you say it? Paper. You know, we tried it in the kibbutz, and that was really, really intense for me. Um, big cinema, and many people came—probably five, six hundred people—and I could feel the electricity in the air. But in the end of the of the of this uh, screening, um, some of the uh, sons and daughters of the founders. Came to me and said, um, thank you very much. This documentary helped us understand our parents better and why they were so quiet and never talked about this period, and also why they were not that emotional and so closed because of this pain that they had. Um, you know, they had to leave their country, they had to leave their parents. Many of their these parents never came to Israel because they. Perished in the, in the, in the Holocaust. So there was a lot of pain there and they wanted to just shut it down and not let the the next generation be involved in this pain, which is something that we all can understand, you know? So that was the kibbutz in Israel and in the world. It was quite, quite amazing. You know, I, I was privileged to screen this film in the United Nations main offices in Vienna the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles, Museum of Holocaust in Montreal. I think it was also in the Museum of Holocaust in Sydney and many, many, many other countries around the world. And uh, I think the most amazing thing that happened with this film, it's not only because of this film, but it for many, many years, Yad Vashem, which is the Israeli organization for the memory of the Holocaust, was not, had no recognition of Jews who saved Jews. So you could be a righteous among the nations only if you were a Christian or Muslim, or, but not a Jew. So there were, was no recognition for people like Wilfred Israel. And this thing actually changed in the year 2020, where Yad Vashem um, made a, a, a whole year event. I don't know how to say it exactly in English, but the whole year was about Jews who saved Jews and Wilfred Israel was in the front. So. To me, it also showed that amazing characters like Wolf at Israel that really—and if you watch the film and if you read the book by Naomi Shepherd, which is so amazing, she made such an amazing research—and I could never make this documentary without her. It's a good—it's—it's it's a good place to to say today. She's she's 90 years old today, and she's in London. She's an amazing human being and I owe her so much um you will find out that wolfred israel was really a, a person that that we all should look up for you know as 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 someone to admire you know someone inspiring someone that was acting with so much courage in one one of the most difficult times in history and he was not a strong man he was a man that suffered from sickness and and Different uh, different illnesses and and and, and his mental uh, condition was not always that great, but he he was able to get this powers from somewhere and to to stay there in Germany. Don't forget, he was British. He could leave Germany at any. He was half British, so because he, he was born in British, so he had a British passport. That was, by the way, one of the reasons why his why his uh, store was. Uh, not taken by 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 the Nazi administration until 1939, he could still run the An Israel big department store because it was uh, he was a, a, a British. So he could leave at any given time, and he decided to stay there, do all these efforts, save all these people, and even coming back there after he left, he had left to to England, and he came back. Two months before the war started, to help with the last uh, trains of the Kinder transport, and then he died together with Leslie Howard, by the way, from *Gone with the Wind* on the same airplane. When he came back after he tried to, not tried after he saved three thousand people from Portugal and Spain, uh, giving them visas and organizing a big boat that left in the beginning, beginning in 1943. So. I think in this day and age, a human being like that should be remembered and should be like a, like a lighthouse for us.
0: Well, I think that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been award-winning documentary film producer and director Jonathan Neer. His documentary, "The Essential Link: The Story of Wilfred Israel," is an amazing story of a wealthy Jewish businessman and owner of Berlin's largest department store in the 1930s, who was involved in the saving of tens of thousands of Jews. For more information about this documentary and everything about Jonathan Neer, go to yonatanneer.com, and you can follow him on Vimeo, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And Yonatan, thanks for being on the show.
1: Thank you for for having me, and have a great, great day.
0: And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.